This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Okay, well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the last of our uh, Cambridge Assessment Network events of the year. Um, I'm Paul Newton. I'm from the division that produces the annual programme of events. Um, and I'm very pleased to be able to welcome and to introduce to you Dr. Jeff Hayward. Um, Jeff is Director of Research and Reader in Education at Oxford's Education Department, and he's also the Associate Director of the ESRC Research Centre um, Skills and Knowledge for Organisational Performance. That's about right? Scope, I think. Um, that's at the moment. I've got in front of me his new card, though. As, as of the 1st of January, he's going to be the head of the school um, at University of Leeds, head of the School of Education. Um, Jeff's broad field of specialism is in vocational education and training, which is an interest that he picked up whilst working as an FE lecturer. Um, he's worked on a range of topics within that field, from national qualifications frameworks um, to the relationship between HE and the economy and to the economics and politics of education and training more generally. Um, This evening, he's going to be talking about the ways in which people with vocational qualifications progress into higher uh, education. And he's presenting findings from a research study that he's conducted with uh, Hubert Ertel and Michael Hoeschler. Is that any really a pronunciation? Um, And uh, we're very much looking forward to hearing that presentation tonight, Jeff. So, over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, and um, thanks, everybody, for coming to listen to me through the, the dark and the, and the wet. This is my um, second appearance in what we call in Oxford the other place. Um, since, I think, September. I'm surprised I was invited back after the result of a recent rugby match, but uh, I'm glad to, be, glad to be here. This project was part of the teaching and learning research programme, but it, it fits into a a wider research programme that we're pursuing uh, within SCOPE, um, which is concerned with people's trajectories into the labour market. So we're coming at this primarily from an economics background. We're interested in what are the rates of return to different types of educational trajectory. Um, we hear the messages that come from policymakers that say that if you get a higher education degree, you will earn £100,000 over over your lifetime compared to somebody who hasn't got such a a degree. Um, I'm a statistician. What that means is that on average, you will earn £100,000. And £100,000 isn't that big a premium. Interestingly, if you go back to the literature about four years ago, it was £400,000. It's now £100,000. So it's come down over time. And what we know is there's a very big dispersion around that average. And we also know from previous research that where you study and what you study really matters in terms of the wage premium that you are getting. Now, what we were picking up, of course, over the last 20 or 30 years, part of that ongoing debate about the parity of esteem between academic and vocational qualifications, that vocational pathways, however you want to define a vocational pathway, and that's probably something we could talk about afterwards, vocational pathways were being pushed as alternative progression routes into higher education. With the message that if you go to higher education and get a degree, you will on average earn more than £100,000 over the course of your lifetime. But is that actually true for people who are progressing to higher education through a vocational route? 
So ideally what we want to do is we want to follow young people from the age of 16 through to the age of 30, 35, through their various educational pathways that they follow, looking at their insertion into the labour market, looking at the wages that they earn, the types of jobs that they actually have. Uh, that's what we'd like to do. Of course, we don't have the data to do that. Uh, I've tried to convince um, various government agencies that they should fund this, but they blanch at the sort of £5 million um, a tag and the fact they'll have to wait for five parliaments before I can actually tell them anything useful, which of course is too long a time for a, for a policymaker. Okay. Um, so these are the questions that we, we, set, we set out to our, try and answer. I don't think we've successfully answered all of them, and this is still ongoing. We're still analysing the, 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 the data and we're currently writing a book about this. We were astonished that nobody could actually tell us how many people with vocational qualifications go to higher education in the United Kingdom. Now, that seemed to us to be a fairly important, basic piece of statistical information that we actually needed to know. But nobody seemed to actually know. Nor did they, nor it would appear, were they able to tell us, was this changing over time? If the policy discourse is to be believed, then we should expect a growing proportion of young people with vocational qualifications young people and older people, as you'll see in a minute, with vocational qualifications to be going into higher education. We then wanted to know, well, what are they doing and where are they studying? And what are the factors associated with the probability of transition? Now, we, the three of us, Hubert, Michael and myself, have a particular take on widening participation. We do not see widening participation just in terms of getting people through the door. We see it in terms of making sure they stick there until the end of the course and that they're successful. And you'll see in a minute that that's a problem. And then we wanted another descriptive question to simply, how successful are students with a vocational background? How well are they actually doing? We also wanted to understand a little bit about the learning experience of the students, so we engaged in some fairly intensive qualitative research in five higher education institutions across the country, where we could identify programs that had intakes of students who are coming through what might be called an academic pathway and a vocational pathway in the same program. So we chose nursing, engineering, and uh, business computing, those sorts, of, those sorts of areas. And we were interested in what was it that higher education institutions were doing to help students coming into university with a vocational background. Okay, so the background then is the widening participation agenda where VET pathways are being put forward as opportunities and we were asking, well, if they are opportunities, what sorts of opportunities are they? We've got some descriptive and explanatory questions which factors influence VET students' access to and success in higher education? So these are essentially descriptive, statistical-type questions which we're going to answer with big, big data sets. Um, but we've got interview data, we've got questionnaire data, and we've got these massive administrative data sets which we spent endless hours banging our head against the wall trying to get to work for us. 
and I'll come back to the data issues in a minute because that's really, really important. So here's the basic research design. We had three components. Part one, which we call transition landscapes. Just how and to what extent do these transitions actually happen? Uh, what sorts of factors seem to affect the transitions probabilities for students from different backgrounds? Secondly, we had a pedagogic um, type of understanding, pedagogical perspective. What do the learning experiences look like of students coming in with different backgrounds? And then thirdly, and I think this is the least successful part of our project, we called it the reform perspective, and that was about how could we help to uh, improve the transition processes. And I think it would be fair to say that that's not worked particularly well. We've had some really, really interesting discussions. But, of course, the world has moved on since we finished this project two years ago. Um, we've had a massive increase in applications to higher education. Uh, we have a, an increase in the number of non-placed applicants. And, of course, that means that the behaviour of admissions tutors and admissions staff may be shifting because they have a bigger pool of applicants to play with. Okay. So this is the first thing that we actually did. Um, we simply tried to work out the qualifications that were held by the applicants. So we have two data sets to help us to answer this. We tried to work with the individual learner record uh, and gave up. So we're working with HESA data, Higher Educational Statistics data, and we're working with UCAS data. And neither of those data sets has the complete list of variables that we're interested in, so we have to join them together. Right, so we match the HESA data to the UCAS applicant data set because the HESA number for a student is the UCAS application number that's been morphed slightly, but you can use it to match the two data sets together. And when you do that, what you're hoping for, of course, is that we be able to say, ah, OCR National, BTEC National Diploma, uh, City and Guilds Level 3 Apprentice. No, no, you can't do that. Um, what this data set looks like is a Swiss cheese and there's more holes than cheese. Um, now, the reason for that is really quite interesting. These are administrative data sets. They're not constructed for research purposes. They're constructed for reporting on student performance in the higher education system, the HESA data set, or they're constructed for the purposes of application and, and, and for people gaining access to higher education in terms of the UCAS data set. As researchers, what we want people to do is laboriously fill in at great detail all of those fields in these databases which are about qualifications. What they're going to do is fill in the ones they have to do to get the money. Um, or in the case of UCAS, fill in the ones which are absolutely essential for getting young people. The data sets are improving over time. There's no doubt about that. Um, but nonetheless, they are problematic. So we came up with a classification of qualifications that looks like that. Um, it's nice and definite up there. You should imagine it as being quite fuzzy. Um, but it's pretty robust. So if you look at the bottom row, what you'll see is it sums to more than 
across the three periods that we're looking at, which means that applicants are holding more than one type of qualification. So what we're doing here is we're counting qualifications, not applicants. But what you can see, of course, over time, is that the proportion of people holding general academic qualifications, which would include A-levels, Scottish hires, IB, those sorts of qualifications, increases over time. But there's a, a substantial increase in the proportion of students who are holding vocational qualifications. So on the basis of that descriptive data, it looks like we're getting more students going into higher education holding vocational qualifications now than we did before. And we constructed that we couldn't use all as just... A, we didn't have enough money to buy the data sets because you have to buy the data sets. And B, we didn't have enough computing um, uh, power and time to work with more data than this. But we did actually deliberately go for one year before 2000 and two years after 2000 because of the Curriculum 2000 reforms, the introduction of GNVQ, the fact that you could begin to mix and match much more easily academic and applied or vocational qualifications. Of course. These are level three, level three qualifications. Now let's look at applicants. Okay, so now the bottom row is 100%. So now we're looking at applicants. And again, we've had to do some sort of classification process. So reading from the top, we've got academic, general academic qualifications, vocational, foundation courses, the ubiquitous other, which you always find, academic plus vocational, academic plus foundation and access, some other combination and no qualification. There's somewhere around about 450,000 applicants per year we're looking at here. So it's not surprising we get that diversity of, 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 of information. You remember when we went and looked at the previous one? We saw the vocational proportion going up. Now we don't. Those coming through a purely vocational route decline over time. What's happening is the ones that are coming through the mixed academic and vocational pathway that um, seems to be increasing over time. And we're assuming that what that is is students combining a sort of two A-level equivalent vocational qualification with a one A-level type, type mixture of, of, of qualifications. We got terribly excited when we saw that, because at the same time we were working on the diplomas and we were evaluating the diplomas and we were saying, well, this is clear evidence what you should do in your additional and specialist learning slot. You should drop an A-level in there because that will make you more attractive to higher education admissions tutors. So on the basis of this evidence, we're, we're, we're tempted to conclude that universities, higher education institutions in general, have become more receptive to students with vocational qualifications over time, but it seems to be that what they're finding attractive is students who are combining that with one 
academic type of qualification. Um, the other route that is growing um, is the academic and foundation access courses. Um, the foundation and access students are really difficult to follow. We suspect the vast majority of them end up in higher education via an alternative pathway that we can't follow through in this, in this data set. We think they're going in through direct entry because I don't believe that fall-off in foundation and access entry. Okay, so that, that was the first sort of step. But what then happens to them? Okay, so this is the sort of standard thing of saying, imagine a hundred students, a hundred applicants with this type of background. So we can follow those who are doing, whoops, sorry, only general academic, this group here, and 11 out of that 100 will not be offered a place. They're not accepted. Now, that's another presentation in its own right, why people are not accepted. Um, you, you see some really rather bizarre choosing behaviour, which doesn't look very rational um, when you see the UCAS forms that are being filled in, people applying to just one institution, for example, and we're sure, certain there are family reasons for, for that. Those who are doing academic and vocational subjects, the second group, they're rather similar look in terms of the probability of being accepted. But this group, those who are only pursuing vocational qualifications, have a high, much higher probability of not being accepted. And partly that is to do with not higher education institutions saying we don't want you, but what might be called self-limiting behaviour by those students in their application processes. Um, for example, only, only choosing a very limited number of very high prestige uh, higher education institutions, perhaps not being realistic enough in terms of what they're applying for. We also wanted to look at um, how well they were doing, and the only thing we could do was to see whether they were still there at the end of the first year. So that's the, that's the marker, the proxy that we've used. And again, what you can see is the academic students are the ones who are more likely to stick, and then the vocational students are the ones who are slightly more likely to drop out. You don't worry to worry about confidence intervals and so on. This is a census, so those are the actual differences. And the academic and vocational, the ones who are mixing, are somewhere, somewhere in, in between. Okay, so we have a pattern of higher education institutions appearing to welcome students with a vocational background, perhaps providing they um, combine that with some sort of academic qualification. Um, but we're also seeing this pattern of um, students who, with vocational qualifications only, are much more likely to drop out uh, within their first year than those who... Um, have just got academic qualifications or those who are combining academic and vocational qualifications. And that leads you, obviously, to the next question, which is who, who are these students? Are they the same or are, do they have different characteristics? So um, just to remind you, the widening participation agenda has actually gone through at least three phases of evolution. The first is simply get more students into higher education. Uh, arguably, you can trace that back to the, to the Robbins report of the early 60s, and then we saw another 
increase. Don't, not worried who they are, let's just get them in. And largely the argument for that is economic. It's about producing a more skilled workforce and so on and so forth. Under new labour, we saw the widening access agenda where education came to be seen not just as an economic policy but as a redistributive policy. Uh, the need to promote social mobility, um, the political um, problems of using the taxation system for redistribution and the idea of learning yourself a better living. So the idea of trying to widen access. And then the later stages of, 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 of the Labour administration, the new Labour administration, we saw the emergence of um, the notion of fair access, particularly after the Laura Spence affair, where the idea was um, students from less privileged backgrounds should have an equal opportunity to go, to go to the most prestigious universities, whatever prestigious means. I got into more trouble over the course of this project with the label prestigious university than anything else. So hell with the statistics. Are the statistics any good? That's irrelevant. What do you mean by a prestigious university? And I always do this, prestigious university. Um, but the idea that, that students um, from less privileged backgrounds should have an equal opportunity to access Oxford, Cambridge, um, UCL, those sorts of institutions, providing, of course, they've got um, some sort of uh, equivalent level of academic attainment. Now, we were interested primarily in the middle one, the widening access. Uh, to what extent was this taking in of more applicants with some sort of a vocational background actually widening participation? Okay, so that's fair access. Uh, we'll come back to that in a minute. All right, so this is the data we're going to use. This is a new analysis now. This is the data we're going to use to look at how students are distributed across subjects and across institutions. Again, we tried to use the Learning and Skills Council's ILR database and, and gave up. So again, we're looking at UCAS and PISA records. And those are the years of the data we've actually got. Now, we can't match that 1995 data set. We can't actually physically put them together because the marker isn't there that we need. We can match the, the other two, the post-2000 ones. And then we had to do a subsample for the following analysis. So this is what we're constraining ourselves to. We're just looking at the HESA data for 2003-04 with the matched UCAS data from the year before. We're only going to look at full-time we're only going to look at those in their first year. We're only going to look at those who are under 21. So there goes all the foundation and access students, I'm afraid. Um, we're only going to look at those in English institutions. And we're only going to look at those ones we can match with UCAS data. Right, that's the only way you can make this statistically tractable to do that. <coughs> and, of course, that introduces all sorts of biases. But nonetheless, we still ended up with 224,000 matched cases that we could use for this analysis. So it's a big, big data set. Um, I don't know whether we'll get to it, but the, the types of models that we're trying to run at the moment with this data, our computers just keep falling over because they can't cope with it. Okay. So inside that data set of 225,000 students, this is what we find. Okay, academic level three, 72.5%. 
academic and vocational 11.2, vocational 8.7, foundation and access 2.7, not, 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 not known, not level 3, 4.9%, 10,000, 11,000 students. Now, the proportion of those coming in with academic qualifications has dropped because actually quite a significant proportion of the ones who are coming in with non-academic qualifications are over the age of 21. So they're, they're, they're late they're late applicants. Okay, so distribution across institutions. We know from the wider literature that where you go matters in terms of how you're going to be rewarded in the future. And we can measure prestige in a variety of different ways. I'm not suggesting that any of these are particularly good measures of prestige. I see I've learned how to get myself off that particular hook over the, over the years. Okay. Um, you can look at the selectivity of student intake by looking at the mean tariff, UCAS tariff score of students going into a particular institution. So a higher mean tariff point would signal a more competitive um, admission requirement, more difficult to get in. You can look at it, by, obviously, by the various historic groupings you can think of. Pre-92s are often seen as more, the more prestigious universities, though I don't think that's ubiquitous. Depends on the subject as well. Um, and you can look at it by RAE and QAA results as well. So just very quickly, here's the distribution across institutions by tariff score. First test, name those two institutions at the top of that axis. This is to test that you actually understand the graph, you see. Which are those two institutions there? Those ones there. Oxford and Cambridge. I'm not going to tell you which one is the slightly higher one. <laughs> okay? But you can see that the proportion of vet students increases as a function of the tariff score decreasing. So... Vet students tend to be ending up, by and large, in some um, in, in the less selective institutions. Now that landscape, of course, has changed. Remember, that's two thousand and three, two thousand and four. I would love to redraw that graph now, because institutions we were describing as non-selective then are now selecting and selecting hard. Um, and the implications of that for students coming through alternative pathways into higher education is something perhaps we can discuss afterwards. Okay, so that's the first one. Here's the distribution across the different types of university. Oh, sorry. There are a couple of really interesting outliers. Yeah, this one here and this one here. Again, I'm, I'm not allowed to identify them because we obviously use these, these, these data sets. I would love to go into this institution and ask them why they've got a high proportion of vet students. And they say, well, we haven't any more, would probably be the answer. Um, so this is historical data. Okay, a distribution, that should come as absolutely no surprise whatsoever um, about where the students are actually ending up. And the question is, of course, does it matter? If the outcomes from all types of higher education institutions are equally good, no, it doesn't matter. If the inputs that higher education institutions can put into the education of their students are all the same, it doesn't matter. 
But I've already told you that the outcomes are different. And in a minute, I'm going to show you the inputs are different as well. So it does matter. We can also, therefore, we can look at the distribution across institutions by RAE value, and we can do it by QAA value as well. So typically, students coming in from vocational uh, backgrounds are going into institutions at that time, were going into institutions which were less selective, um, had lower RAE and lower QCA scores. Why does that matter? It matters because of that. This is some work um, Vicky Bowen did at Oxford um, looking at the resources that were available for different types of HEIs in terms of uh, teaching. You can see that what she termed the new universities, this column here, have got appreciably less resource to invest than the Russell Group or what she called the other old universities. Now, the implication is of that is that students from vet backgrounds are studying at the less prestigious universities, which may have an impact on the economic returns that they're going to receive. And they're also the most disadvantaged of all non-traditional educational pathways. I'll show you that in a minute. They're the most disadvantaged students. They're coming from the most disadvantaged backgrounds. And they are going into the institutions with the least resource to actually <coughs> teach them. There is no pupil premium for these students. Mind you, there's no pupil premium anyway. Okay. Okay, let's look at the distribution across subjects then. Now, remember where I came from. I was saying right at the very beginning, our perspective on this was largely economic. We were interested in the wage premium or the rates of return that young people progressing into higher education from different backgrounds might actually get as a result of their investment in higher education. And we know that where you study has an impact on that. <clears throat> we also know what you study has an impact on that as well. So there are different rates of return we can look at, wage premium in the future, or by type of subject, more or less supplied. Um, we've got very bad data on this, the sort of wage premium. So we're going to look at this, the more or less applied. Okay, so we, we know that those subjects have high rates of return in the labour market. Um, we know the next group down, and then we know the lowest group at, at, at the bottom. Um, that doesn't mean I don't think humanities and language subjects are worth studying. Of course they are, but it's just the brute fact of the economic returns to those particular qualifications, as established by colleagues at the LSE. Okay. Right, now, this gets a bit tricky now. These are odds ratios. Um, if you see an odds ratio of one, that means the same likelihood, the same probability. So we're comparing the three pathways you can see on the screen with students who have come through the academic pathway. So let's take a look, first of all, at this one here. Okay, that's very close to one, which means it's equally likely for someone who studied an academic and vocational pre-HE curriculum to be studying a subject allied to medicine as someone who's followed an academic pre-HE curriculum. 
look at medicine and dentistry and you can see that the likelihood is far less for students who've come through an academic vocational pathway and vanishingly small for someone who's come through a vocational pathway. If we look, however, at engineering and technology here, uh, we find that these students are much more likely to come from a vocational background. We're still very puzzled about that one, education. I, we still find that puzzling. The other interesting one is this one, business and administrative studies. A lot of students who have gone through vocational pathways have done business-type level three qualifications, are progressing into business and administration studies. And if we go back, business and administration has a good rate of return in the labor market. Okay. So students with VET backgrounds, by and large, are more likely to be studying applied subjects, which is what you would expect, the exceptions being medicine and law. There's no very clear signal that they're underrepresented in subjects that gain higher rates, of, higher rates of return. Many of them are in those two top bands. They're not doing humanities and languages, for example. Um, but what we really need to be able to do is to do this analysis on a, a much less aggregated subject level. We're using the HESA codes, which aggregate subject departments up into these big, big entities. So what exactly does engineering and technology subjects actually encompass? Um, we, we don't know. Uh, and we simply cannot, given the state of the data we've got at the moment, drill down into those sorts of lower-level questions. Okay, now it could be, of course, that the distribution that we saw of the vocational students across the higher education institutions could simply be a function of the subjects they're choosing to study, i.e. post-92 institutions are more likely than pre-92 institutions to offer applied learning opportunities. And that seems to us to be an entirely reasonable hypothesis. So the challenge for us is to control for that um, and ask the question, given that you are studying art and design and you're studying it in a pre-92, are you more or less likely to have followed an academic or a vocational pathway to have accessed that learning opportunity? And that's what we're doing here. Okay, These, again, are odds ratios. Um, where you see lots of ones, it's because um, there's the, the, size, the sample sizes are really quite, quite small. So, for example, where you're seeing medicine and dentistry... The reason why you're getting ones across the board is because the vocational and the foundation and access cohorts doing medicine and dentistry are just tiny. Uh, and so we're picking up as one. The interesting ones are the ones down here. These ones. Do you remember we said that these were the sorts of subjects where students doing vocational qualifications and to a certain extent foundation and access qualifications were overrepresented if they'd gone through a vocational pathway or a foundation and access pathway. What this is saying is that if you are studying creative arts and design in a pre-92 university, you are much more likely to have come through an academic pathway than a vocational pathway. 
which suggests that however it happens, there is some sorting mechanism which says if you're going to do creative art and design with a vocational background, you're going to do it in a post-92, not a pre-92. Now, how that works is something we don't know. Um, but nonetheless, it's a, it's, a distinct, it's a distinct effect. So this is controlling, remember, for subjects across institutions. Okay. So students from a VET background are more likely to study applied subjects. Their choices are not necessarily unfavorable in terms of the gained wage premiums because they're in the, the top or the middle, the middle bands. But controlling for subjects they are much less likely to go to prestigious higher education institutions even when you control for the subject. So there is some sort of a sorting process that's going on that's channeling students into different types of higher education institution. Now I think about the admissions process not as a search for merit, which is how it's often portrayed, I see it as a form of organisational risk management. Higher education admissions tutors only have so many places to offer in any one particular cycle. If they lose one of those students in the first or the second year, they can't backfill. They've lost that income. And actually, that's even more problematic if you're in Oxford and a Cambridge college because you may only have three places in that subject. And if you lose one, you've lost one-third of your income. Now, I think that makes higher education admissions tutors pretty risk-averse, particularly in some types of institution. Furthermore, when you think about what they're confronted with when they're asked to make sense of our vocational qualification system, it's a pretty daunting task. The talk I gave in Cambridge earlier on this year, um, and Tim was shaking his head vigorously and then nodding his head vigorously, so I must have got something, something right at some point. I, I said that the, 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 the vocational qualification system is insanity. It's not a system. It's too complicated. Why should a higher education admissions tutor or, or admissions staff invest vast amounts of time understanding how to navigate this system when you know damn well in two years' time it's going to probably be reformed anyway or changed. Much more sensible strategy is to go for those you um, believe will do well in the system because historically you've found they've done well in the system, those who have come through a, a more academic route, um, and then only take a risk if you've got a few places left over, left over at the end. The exception to that, of course, is where higher education institutions build strong links to local providers so they get to know the students. So there's an information asymmetry. It's a standard problem of filling jobs. If you've ever interviewed for jobs, it's exactly the same, exactly the same problem. So I'm not going to blame you know, higher ed, post pre-92 higher education institutions for, for, for the behaviour that they're, that, they're, that they're showing. And furthermore, the qualitative work we've done would suggest that the students who are coming through vocational pathways are not necessarily making sensible choices. They may not be very, being very well guided, or there are other factors in their lives 
which means they have to make a more restricted choice. For example, they tend to be older. Uh, and that may mean that they have family commitments and so on and so forth, which means they can only make a more restricted choice. So there's quite a lot about this we still don't understand, but at least we've got um, some understanding of that there is actually some sort of sorting process going on. Okay. Um, just one other thing I wanted to, to talk about a little is the, is the case study work we did. We, we interviewed literally hundreds of students and um, admission staff and the university lecturers in these five institutions. So we've got 15 subjects, uh, 15 groups, three subjects across five institutions. And a pretty consistent message came out of that, which actually began to resonate with another piece of work we were doing at the same time with UCAS as part of the Nuffield 14 to 19 review. When we ask students what makes you feel prepared for higher education study, those who had come through the A-level pathway consistently said what I have learnt in my A-levels, i.e. the knowledge they had gained from their A-levels. Those coming through vocational pathways, which could be as diverse as BTEC National Diplomas or NVQs, talked about time management. That's what makes me feel prepared for higher education. Not my subject knowledge, but time management. And when we got talking to the lecturers who were teaching these students, we found two, possibly three, quite distinct responses to having vocational students in their classes. One group of lecturers said, no, no, it's a clean slate. We're not interested in what they've done before. Everybody starts in the same place. Now, a lot of people would see that as being fair. I don't. I think being fair means taking account of where people have come from and what, what their particular learning needs might be. Another group of lecturers said, yeah, it's okay having vocational students in our class, but, you know, they can be a problem. They get behind with their assignments. They're a bit older. They've got family concerns and those sorts of things. And a third group would say, no, no, we really welcome vocational students. Um, primarily because they bring a wider range of, of experiences to um, discuss uh, in class with the other students, but they need extra support. The first group of lecturers tended to be mainly computer scientists. The second group of lecturers tended to be mainly computer scientists. And the third group of lecturers tended mainly, mainly to be nursing tutors. So we pursued this notion of extra support what exactly is it these students need when they arrive here? And the answer is subject knowledge. That's where they need the support. Plus, the thing that resonated most strongly with the work we were doing for the Nuffield 14 to 19 review at the time was the ability to produce an argument in sustained prose, i.e. write an essay. And we had literally interviewed... A few weeks before we were doing those interviews, we literally finished interviewing hundreds of admissions tutors for part of the Nuffield 14 to 19 review, and a very, very clear and consistent message that was coming out of that, and all the work we were doing on the UCAS tariff, was this importance of constructing sustained arguments through written prose. Um, and you can see the, 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 logic, the logic for that. Um, and, I, and I think that has implications. I'm not quite sure what the implications are, but I think it has implications for the design of vocational qualifications. If you wish to claim 
these qualifications support progression into higher education. And there's a real tension, I think, between what employers are looking for and what higher education... Well, there's a potential tension between what employers are looking for or say they're looking for and what higher education admissions tutors are calling for, which was a circle that was beginning to be sort of sorted out in the diploma development process until QCA got their hands on it um, and imposed their own set of requirements on on that process. And I think it's a a, a debate that we need to have more of. Okay. Um, So the quantitative analysis background is a risk factor for dropping out. The qualitative analysis just paints a far more complicated picture. So we went back to the quantitative data, and I don't want to terrify people at this point. Um, We started to use what's called multi-level modelling. The types of statistical models we'd done before are called fixed effects models, which simply says, is there an effect aggregated across all institutions? Now we wanted to ask the question, well, given what we've been told in these interviews, can we detect an institutional effect in addition to this fixed effect across the sector. Do different institutions have different likelihoods of dropping out for vocational students? Okay, I'm just going to skip to this. There's the fixed effects model. That's the effect there. Okay, which is showing the increased likelihood of a vet student dropping out compared to an academic student. When we run the model with um, other, other things put in, what we find is um, that effect, the fixed effects, is, is, is gone. This is the vet. It's gone. But what we find is significant effects down here in what are called the random effects. Now, we find these, these models are really quite difficult to interpret. Um, our current interpretation, and this is literally work which we're still, we're still doing, our current interpretation is what this is showing us is differential dropout across institutions for students with a VET background. So it seems that having a VET background is a risk, but it's a differential risk depending upon which type of institution that you find yourself in. Okay. What it's suggesting to us is the institution you attend in terms of your likelihood of dropping out is more important than the subject you are studying. So that suggests to us that there is some sort of institutional level risk protection factor, if we could call it that, operating. Okay. Um, And two things are beginning to emerge that those with a VET background are more vulnerable, but they're particularly vulnerable in higher education institutions which have a high dropout rate for all their students. That doesn't mean that the academic students are dropping out at the same rate as the vocational students. What it means is that the vocational students are even more likely to drop out in an institution where there's high dropout rates anyway. And secondly, that VET students seem to perform better. They seem to be able to stick... Um, through to the end of the first year in institutions where there are a lot of other VET students. A high RAE score seems to have a small positive effect on on this, i.e. 
if you're a more research-intensive university, the stickability for the vet students is higher, and I don't understand that. Interestingly, the QAA, which is supposed to measure the teaching quality, has no effect at all. Um, okay. But these, these really are, you know, this is stuff that's just literally starting to, to emerge now, and we're still scratching our heads and, and puzzling about it. And that's where I'd like to stop. So a very complicated picture. I think we need to get away from the simplistic idea that selective universities discriminate against vet students and so on and so forth and begin to think in much more complicated ways about um, what are the risk and protection factors that different institutions provide which enable all of their students to be successful but which may be particularly important for vocational students. And do vocational students need particular types of support when they progress to higher education in order for them to be, to be successful? Um, there's, you know, we, we've been talking for years about should we be mapping the curriculum in some way pre-HE with the, with the HE curriculum to make sure there's a smoother transition, the sort of thing that goes on now between secondary schools and primary schools. Should we be thinking about doing that for, for, for upper secondary adult education into, into higher education. What about my economic concern that I started out with? The, the way I phrase that is to ask the following question. Would that student who's done a BTEC national diploma or an OCR national or whatever, would they be economically better off if they hadn't gone into higher education? Or would they be economically better off if they'd chosen to do an apprenticeship rather than go into higher education? And the answer is I don't know, because I haven't got the data. Um, but we're trying to get it. Uh, we are definitely trying to get it, because I think it's an important set of questions that we need to be able to provide young people with good information, advice, and guidance about what the likelihood is. The one interesting case I would point to is Derby where Rolls-Royce were getting very concerned about the quality of the apprentices that they were recruiting. This is an elite apprenticeship. Right? They have more applications now for this apprenticeship than there are applications for English degrees at Oxford University in the course of the year. And what they did is they went to the parents, and they said to the parents, look, do you want to spend all that money sending your kid through some degree at a university, or do you want them to come and work for us? And what we'll do is we'll put them through university for you if we think that's the appropriate thing to do. And parents flooded into these sessions with uh, Rolls-Royce. And I thought it was a really, really interesting marketing strategy. Um, but also beginning to open up this whole debate about exactly what is a degree worth. Thanks very much. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.